Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national, and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McClanahan, and in this episode of the podcast, my guests and I will be discussing family group conferencing, what the practice is and how it can lead to improved outcomes for children and families receiving support from social work services. Before we get into the discussion, I'll welcome my guests. They are Sarah Brown, Head of Social Work at the University of Kent, Dr. Kate Parkinson, Subject Leader in Health and Social Care at the University of Huddersfield, and Lucy Gibson, an expert by experience of family group conferencing. Sarah, Kate, Lucy, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. You're very welcome. How are you all doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Good, thank you. That was Sarah first, that was Kate second, is that right, Yes. <laughs> yes, that's right, yeah. Uh, Lucy, how are you? I have a sore throat, so I apologise if I don't sound very well, but I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for joining us, despite your sore throat. Um, where is everybody? Sarah, where are you at the moment? So I'm in a sunny Medway at the moment. Um, the sun is shining. It's a beautiful day. Medway is in Kent, yeah? Yes, well, it's a unitary authority of Kent. Okay, yes. okay. And Kate, where are you? So I'm in my office at the University of Huddersfield. And again, a lovely sunny day. Yes, your new office. Your new My office, new yes. office, yes. yes. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations on the new post. Oh, and, thank you uh, very much. You're welcome. Uh, Lucy, where are you? I'm in Canada and it's very snowy here. You're in oh, Canada? Wow. Where, where, whereabouts <laughs> in Canada? Um, just south of Calgary, Alberta. Okay. So near so the Rocky pretty, Mountains. Pretty far Very west. beautiful. Yes. Uh, Lucy, but you're not originally, I'm guessing you're not originally from Calgary? No, I have been here 12 years, but my family... Um, is in Oxford in the UK and uh, that's where I um, had my experience with a family group conference. Uh, Thanks for joining us and thank you for um, agreeing to share some of your experience with us Lucy. Now to start us off um, Sarah it would be helpful if you could provide us a brief overview of what family group conferencing is. I'm aware that not all social workers will know what it is and we'll obviously have some non-social workers listening as well that haven't experienced family group conferencing. So in a nutshell what is a family group conference? Well, in a nutshell, it is a forum where decisions are made. Um, But I think it's important to also understand the ethos, which is about that families have strengths and families have a right to make decisions about things that affect them. Um, So the purpose of the family group conference is for the family to identify people around them who can come together and make plans for vulnerable people because they're the best place people to know what that person needs. Now, my experiences are in childcare, but I'm sure as we talk through this podcast, we'll hear about other ways in which family group conferences happen. Uh, And secondly, within that ethos of strengths-based practice, it's really important to acknowledge in an authentic way of delivering a family group conference, it can only happen if everybody consents to the process. So in a nutshell, it's a decision-making forum. Thank you, Sarah. Now, we're going to talk in a bit more detail with Kate later on about the different steps and different stages of a family group conferencing. But just before we get on to that, you know, again, very high level. um, Can you give us just a very brief overview of the process and how it works? Yeah, so the process is is that um, I'll talk about children because that's my experience, but a child is identified as that there are difficulties in in providing care for them um, at that moment in time. And, And so 
what will happen in my experience is that a social worker will contact us um, and say that a family group conference needs to happen. So the process that will happen then is that we visit the person who's got responsibility for that child and talk about who there, there is in their network who might be able to support them. Um, and so we talk about um, wider family members as well, as well as friends, family, etc. So that so Kate will talk much more about the preparation stage, but that's effectively a very long part of the process. So you are meeting people, relevant people in a child's life, which can come together and support in that decision making process. So after you've done that and you've visited all the family and friends that are relevant to that child, you will hold a family group conference um, where there are different elements with such as information giving private family time and developing a family plan, which can then be reviewed by the people in that in that meeting. Thank you, Sarah. And you said earlier that um, the purpose is it's to place the family at the centre of the decision making. Is that correct? Yes, that, that is entirely correct. Well, it's to place a child at the, the centre of the decision making and the family and friends around that child who can help support and, and give caregiving to that child. And that's in the, in the in the specific context of um, children's services, but family group conferencing will be used in contexts other than children's services. Isn't that right? Um, yeah, absolutely. It can be used lots in lots of different contexts. Um, different contexts include uh, working with uh, adults with safeguarding concerns. And I know Kate's got lots of experience of that and has written about that. Um, uh, also be used in mental health contexts. It can be used in the context of uh, contextual safeguarding of, of children at risk of exploitation. Um, it can be used in the learning difficulties context uh, as People are seeking asylum context, loads of different contexts in which it can work in. It has primarily largely been used in the children's safeguarding process. But I know it, it, the ripples are starting to go out much further in restorative justice as well as another example. Yeah, I was going to say, I have a colleague who works, um, she's a real advocate of restorative practices and works in uh, criminal justice uh, in her background. It, yeah. It's a, So it's a technique that's used in that context as well. Thank you, Sarah. That's really helpful to kind of expand it out a little. The next question I want to ask is, you know, how are they used? I mean, is a family group conference, is it a direct alternative to a child protection case conference? That is a very good question. And I would say it depends where in the world you live. Um, in the UK, my experience is no, it is not used as an alternative to child protection. But in other parts of the world, it is. Um, it is largely used in the UK in a in a statutory process Um at PLO stage, at the public law outline stage. Most of those working with children at the PLO stage will be required to undertake a family meeting before before proceedings take place. But it's up to the local authority on how that is achieved. So in some areas, it will be achieved via a family group conference, but that's not consistent across the UK. Some are using different techniques to achieve this family negotiation and discussion, um, such as um, family circles, family network meetings, but they are not family group conferences. Thanks, Sarah. Now, Kate, I want to move on and I want to talk about the, the reach and, and, and who's involved uh, in terms of participants in family group conferencing. Is it restricted to members of the nuclear family or can grandparents, aunts and uncles and so on be involved? Yes, so for the purpose of family group conference, we're really talking about a broad definition of family. And essentially, we're talking about a social network. So it's people who are important to the individual or the family who are at the centre of the family group conference. So important people can include 
yes, they can include extended family, aunts, uncles, grandparents, but also friends, neighbours and other members of the community. So it's essentially down to um, the individual who they want to invite to their FGC. Okay, okay. I wasn't actually planning on asking you this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Does that mean the title, Family Group Conferencing, can be a bit misleading? Could it be more appropriately titled? I liked what you said about social networks. That's That was helpful. That's a really interesting question, and I suppose it depends upon what... Um, you know, the kind of social construct of family and what your definition of, of family is. And there's many cultures that would have a much more broader definition of family than just the nuclear family uh, with parents and two, you know, 2.4 children. Um, and so, um, yeah, so in some cultures, family means a whole community um, and a whole community has responsibility for caring for a child within the community. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I guess with regards to the British context, it could be quite misleading, but um, but I, I, it does depend on what you, your definition of, of family is, to be honest. Absolutely. No worries. Uh, two, I'm thinking two, year, two World Social Work Days back, we did an episode on Ubuntu uh, and the mm-hmm. concept of, you know, that was, you know, the much wider kind of social networks, as you were describing. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it takes me back to that. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Now, Lucy, um, we've heard about the aim of the process, putting the child, putting the family um, at the centre of the decision making process. Now, it's a process that you have been through. Um, and I'm keen to know a little bit about your experience of being involved in a family group conference. Can you tell me about the, the context that you were involved? Yeah, I'm, I'm an auntie of the child who was um, um, this, I guess the subject of the family group conference. Um, and the social workers had reached out to extended family to ask how they could help um, when the parent was unable to cope. And so extended family... Um, in this case, meant uh, two members of the family who were the other side of the Atlantic. So myself in Canada and my brother in the States and the grandparent who uh, the child had lived with on and off throughout and also um, a great auntie. So there was quite a few people, um, an extended family who were involved. In terms of putting the child at the centre of the decision-making, um our experience was um was made quite difficult in that the child didn't want to engage with the family uh group conference coordinator at all it was at the height of the pandemic so i don't know whether it's usual for the coordinator to contact the the child via letter but that's how it was done Um, she wasn't able to meet her in person. Um, the child tore up the letter and refused to engage. Um, the, the, the fact that we were able to communicate across the other side of the ocean during the pandemic was amazing. Um, and eventually we all came to the UK. Uh, the, the, um, I was actually there in the UK when the family group conference happened and then my brother arrived later. So um, that will give you a bit of background about um, the situation that we were in. Um, does that help? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you had then, you participated in the process face to face, but at the start, Sarah had mentioned the preparation stage. I'm guessing that was done remotely. Was that done electronically? Everything everything was done remotely. Okay. We, we were unable to meet face to face. Oh, okay. Okay. 
yeah, so we did it all via Zoom, etc., which were, had its benefits because it meant we could all attend during the pandemic. Yes, yes. Um, but it also had its drawbacks, and as in that personal connection that the coordinator may have been able to develop with the child wasn't able to happen. Um, and in the event, I could tell you a little bit more about um, in the event the meeting had to be cancelled on one occasion. Um, and then on the second meeting, we had to change things up a little bit. Would you like me to tell you a little bit about please, that? Please, please do. Okay, so the the child was, we were told not to share what was in the meeting with the child, that it's between adults and, um, you know, that we needed to discuss the difficulties and what might be happening amongst ourselves, the decision makers, before sharing it with the child. This didn't go down very well. This child was absolutely terrified of being taken into care and was convinced that this plan was a plan to take her into care. So she sabotaged the first meeting and then the second meeting she attempted to again. And at that stage, I said to the um, the coordinators and they okayed it with social workers, can I just read out the questions that the social workers are going to ask? I'm going to read out the answers that the family are giving and then she can relax. And that's what happened. And she ended up attending the full meeting because they had allocated a five minute spot for her. Well, that wasn't going to be enough. I don't feel it was enough. I think she should have been far more central to it. That was made difficult by the fact that she wouldn't engage with, <laughs> with the coordinator. But still, somehow we should have found a way of doing that. And, and that's eventually what happened. She, she, I read out all the questions and all the answers and she could see that it was all just ways of keeping her with the family. Um, and then the meeting went ahead and, uh, yeah, it was very helpful. Thank you, Lucy. Now, Kate, I could see you were shaking your head a little bit there. I mean, I'm going to talk about the different players in the process now and I want to, to discuss those roles. But before we do that, actually, the question I have is, you know, uh, Lucy essentially now, um, to paraphrase, was suggesting that um, the child who was the subject of the family group conference was essentially kept in the dark um, at the outset of the process. Is that good practice? It sounds like it might be bad practice to me. No, so that's not good practice, good FGC practice. Um, essentially, children um, and young people are central to the family group conference process. They play a pivotal role. Um, they, It's their meeting, essentially. So they should be involved in deciding who to invite to the FGC, where it should be held, um, if there's any refreshments on offer, what they are. They sh- um, certainly should be um, have sight of the, the social workers' report for the FGC and what the issues and concerns are that need to be addressed at the, addressed at the family group conference. And they should be given the opportunity um, to, um, to voice their views and their opinions at the FGC. And the default position for a family group conference is that the child or young person should attend their FGC if they want to. Um, there are some exceptions to that in the sense that if it's decided it's not appropriate, for example, if children are very young or if there are certain risk factors that might prevent that from happening. But that's not the vast majority of cases. Most of the time, children and young people are um, invited to attend their FGC. Some choose not to attend, um, but most want to be engaged in the process. And if they don't attend the FGC, they um, can be offered the support of an advocate to represent their views at a family group conference. Now, most FGC services 
don't aren't lucky enough to have their own formal advocacy service some do but in most cases children and young people are asked if there's someone in their existing network who isn't a family member um, who can advocate for them and generally that would be like a teacher a youth worker or you know somebody in a similar position and that advocate can attend to represent their views um, on their behalf or they can attend with the young person to support them in representing their views at the meeting. So, um, so yeah, children definitely should be central to the whole FGC process. And I just want you to correct me if I need corrected here, because I talked about uh, the child being the subject of the family group conference. So you've talked about the child it being their family group conference. What What is yes. the best way to describe that? I'm guessing maybe talking about them being subject sounds like that's maybe disempowering rather than empowering. Yeah, and I, I suppose it could be um, described as semantics with regards to language. Oh, I think this is I really important. Say, I think it's yes, so important. Yeah, I would say that uh, it's the young person's meeting. Okay. Um, and that very much needs to be, it's about them and their lives, and that very much needs to be emphasised in the process. Professionals might talk about children being subject to a family group conference, but um, but really we should be talking about family group conferences as if it's, as if it's a young person's meeting. Okay, thank you. Now, there are different players in the process. So the young person, it's their meeting. Um, they're at the centre. There is a coordinator. Lucy talked about the coordinator role earlier. There's the social work role. So can we go through those, um, the, the role of the social worker in the process? Uh, Kate, can you unpack that for me? Okay, yes. So the role of the social worker is it's not their role to organise the family group conference. So their so their role is they would make a referral for a family group conference and the family are then allocated an independent coordinator who will support them um, in um, getting their conference off the ground and um, and facilitating the conference, if you like. So the social worker's role is to um, for the family group conference write a brief jargon-free report that outlines what the family's strengths are, what issues they need to address in their family plan, what services, support and resources are potentially available to help support the family in the plan, and what the bottom line is. So that the bottom line is essentially what the local authority won't agree to. So the family have got a very clear framework from the social worker um, in which to base their plan. The social worker is then expected to attend the family group conference um, and contribute their reports um, during the, uh, the family group conference and be available if the family have got any questions throughout the process. And then at the end of the meeting, when a family have developed their plan, they've got the responsibility of agreeing a family's plan on behalf of the local authority if the if the plan is safe, legal and it meets all of the issues outlined in the social workers' reports. Okay, thank you, Kate. The coordinator then, that's not the social worker. Who is the coordinator and when do they get involved? Okay, yes, so that's a good question. So the independent coordinator is um, somebody who is independent from decision-making processes with regards to the um, the family whose FGC it is. So... Um, independence um is you know can be quite um a murky kind of term really because actually um a lot of the time 
independent coordinators are employed by the local authority who employs the social worker who but they're independent from decision making processes and their role is um to facilitate the fgc work with the family support them prepare them for the family group conference and the professionals who are going to be invited to the family group conference and essentially chair the meeting and um support a family to develop their um their family plan so I am an, a family group conference coordinator and I'm very interested in what you said there, Kate, about what it looks like, because just as um, my own personal anecdote that I became a family group conference coordinator in 2015, uh, initially for a charity, so that independence was maintained. And what's happened now is that the local authority who used to commission us have taken it in-house um, I'm not sure of the reasons, and maybe this isn't the arena to discuss that, but we talk about that murky world of independence. This is where it gets a bit troublesome because I can see the uh, data, so the computer database with all the information about the child and decisions that are being made, but I've got to maintain independence. So that creates a difficulty for me and keeping my boundaries clear, but also it's very hard for families and, and children to understand my role when I have a badge with the local authority's name written on it, because I have to say I'm not your social worker. Um, my role is very different, but I'm sat there with the badge um, from the local authority, which their social worker comes from. So it's maintaining that independence, particularly when you've got that m- more tricky, murky water, as, as Kate mentioned, it, is much harder but, but you can only support this rights-based, family-led, empowering practice if you are, do not have any responsibility for decision-making around the child. Um, and so this is, and, and I, I am a social worker by practice. I come from social work. It's also been an, an, an ethos change for me, having a different role, moving away from being that person who makes decisions. And I'm not saying it's easy, not because I'm a control freak, but <laughs> I'm not saying it's easy moving from the person who makes the decisions to the person that facilitates decision making within the family. But it's a vital ingredient of that um, empowering family led process. I think it was very difficult for our coordinator to impart that information to the child concerned because the child just presumed, well, you're just another social worker. And that is one of the reasons that she just refused to engage. Um, And I don't know how, how we overcome that. Um, certainly, I think um, it was made more difficult in our in our situation because of the pandemic. It was very remote and very difficult to establish. So. I, I think you've already hit the nail on the head, to be honest, Lucy. It's about relationship. Mm-hmm. And the time it takes me to build up a relationship with a family where they trust what my role is and what I'm going to be doing yeah. It takes more than just one home visit. <laughs> it takes a lot of time. Yeah, and certainly the the relationship between the extended family and, and our coordinator was great. Yes. It was great. She was able to facilitate, um, you know, a successful meeting. And, and that was, again, amazing considering we were on different sides of the world at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean... It- I've had to work through the pandemic as a family group conference coordinator and and it has had significant challenges on my relationship with children and families. However, I have hosted family group conferences similar to you with people in different time zones, um, different parts of the UK even, and got 
got perspectives and views from people that probably would not ever be able to make that journey. Right. So we, so a slightly hybrid model isn't a bad thing, right. I think, um, where geography is concerned. But equally, the, the face-to-face relationship, as you have already correctly identified, well, I agree with you, yeah. <laughs> is, is an absolute key, key part of this process working effectively. Yeah. Sarah, you'd mentioned about the relationship building, and I'm presuming that is done essentially in the preparation phase. I want to get on to the actual the meeting then. Um, and as I understand, uh, the key part, a key, sorry, a key part of the meeting is the private family time uh, where the family are able to discuss and develop the plan themselves. Can we learn a little bit more about that? Kit, can you tell me about that process? And perhaps, Lucy, you could then explain a bit about how that worked in reality for you. So um, private family time is... Um one of the different stages of the family group conference. So first of all, you have your preparation stage, um, which Sarah's already um, discussed, um, which um, is the lengthiest stage of the process. That's what that's everything that happens before the meeting and can take on average about four to six weeks to make sure that everybody who's attending the meeting fully understands what's been asked of them. Um, then when you actually get to the meeting, there's a number of different stages. And one of those is the, the first stage is the information giving stage where the social worker shares their report for the FGC. And if there are any other professionals there, they can share the information that they've got. And then the family have a chance to ask questions of the professionals before they then move into the key part of the process, which is the private family time. And that essentially means that the um, all of the professionals leave the room and the family are left alone as a family to develop their family plan. Now, initially, the family group conference coordinator would stay in with the family just to make sure that they fully understood what's been asked of them, just to check out if they've got any last minute questions and um, make sure that they've got everything they need. But the independent coordinator will also leave the family to it as well. Um, they'll be on hand if the family have got any questions and they might pop their head around the door, you know, every half an hour or so to just see how the family are getting on. But it is essentially uh, the family's meeting and the family's process. So the family, we have faith in the family to um, to communicate with each other as they would as a family and and develop a plan which meets their needs. And Lucy, what Kate has described there, does that reflect the experience that you had? Yeah, it, it, it does. Um, however, when it actually came to our private family meeting time, we had already discussed it as a family. And so there wasn't anything really new that came out at that time. We already knew what our plan was because we had been prepared previously by the coordinator about what was going to be asked and what our responses are likely to be. And we, yeah, so we already knew what we were going to say and nothing had changed. Okay, and is that often the case, Kate, Sarah, that the, the discussions have actually happened in advance? Quite, quite often that can happen, but but equally sometimes, well, quite often as well, there are additional family members that wouldn't normally be part of the, the close group that, that can offer something to the discussion as well. I mean, I've been in family group meetings, uh, conferences where the private family time has happened and it's taken 20 minutes because probably there's been chats beforehand, as Lucy's mentioned, I've, I've hosted them where they've gone on for three hours 
Um, you just never know and what what things are going to come up because they're these are very informal processes. They're, they're not led by the formality of child protection meetings. They're fluid. They have to meet what what the family wants, and they're not rigid according to templates and structures. They're about a family, as we would, as we all would with our families. We sit down and we have a conversation, and sometimes that can be quick, but equally sometimes that can be quite protracted. Absolutely. Sarah's just mentioned child protection conferences there. And I think um, it's quite significant, really, the difference between a family group conference and a child protection conference. Um, So, for example, um, a child protection conference will often have a confidential slot in which the family members who are at the child protection conference are asked to leave whilst the professionals discuss the family and their, you know, and their business. And however, the private family time kind of flips that on the head and says to the professionals, we're going to discuss our own private family business and you're not allowed in the room whilst we're doing that. And I think that's extremely empowering and really significant. But Kit, what happens if the family is unable to come to an agreement during that private family time discussion? That's a really good question. Research suggests that by the time we get to the family group conference, most families are are able to come up with an agreed family group conference plan. However, there are those cases where the families, for whatever reason, are not able to develop a plan. Initially, with the permission of the family, the independent coordinator may go into private family time and try to support the family to uh, reach some agreements. But if that's not able to happen. If as the next step is dependent really upon whether or not there are statutory timescales and processes going on. So for example, if there, there are any court timescales, if um, there's care proceedings ongoing, because if, if there aren't, a family may then get another opportunity to come together with a bit more preparation to have another go at developing a family plan at a family group conference. However, if time's of the essence and there are pressing timescales, then the family may not have the opportunity to do to do that. And then we default back to um, traditional um, decision making processes Um in a, in the child protection context anyway. Sarah, you want to say something about that? Thing? Yeah, I suppose I just wanted to go back to what I mentioned at the start, which is that this is a voluntary process, ideally. It's a voluntary process and consent is given for this process. And therefore, if a plan's not made, is that a decision in its own right, maybe? Um, but, but as Kate has rightly pointed out, it, when it's used alongside statutory processes, it gets a, a little bit those those issues get a bit intertwined but but not having a family plan is a decision in its own right but equally as Kate said flexibility is the key here giving people time out coming back again at a later date are all things that we would want to um, facilitate to enable families to get a plan because this is about the child or children um, and and we want to facilitate that as much as possible. In in our case we we were asked to make a short-term, medium and long-term plan. And um, whilst we were able to come up with short-term and medium-term, the medium-term was about the child developing a relationship with extended family who were, had been overseas and still are overseas. Um, and really the long-term couldn't be decided until that medium-term had happened. So we weren't able to give the long-term plan. Um, 
and and that was okay. The, the, the social workers were okay with that. Okay, so can in that context, can it be a sort of a, an, an iterative process where you can have a family group conference? Can you come back to the process then later in in the context that Lucy's talking about? Um, I I really wish that we could have um, an extension of our family group conference. Conference. I'm not quite sure what happened. Um, the when I had called the social workers. Um, a few months after the family group conference when plans didn't go exactly as, as we'd wanted. Um, the child ended up temporarily back into care. Um, and I phoned the social workers and there was a new social worker and the new social worker wasn't aware of our family group conference and who was involved. And that, so that hasn't been followed up. We haven't had, to me, ideally we should have had one every six months or every year to see how are those relationships developing? What are the needs now of the family? Because it's a fluid situation. Um, and I think, I think to have all that, the, the answers at the beginning was a bit unrealistic because we weren't sure how these relationships were going to work out. Um, and I, I feel that, it, that the family group conferencing should be continued basically um, for a number of uh, of years or at least until um, some stability has been found for the child. That, that's really interesting to hear, Lucy, your views. When I first started doing FGCs a while ago, it was quite unusual to offer a review, but we're doing it more and more now. Families want a review. They want the chance to come back and, and, and speak about how the plan is progressing. So it's interesting you say that because I'm hearing and I'm planning more reviews than I ever have done before. Uh, so that that really supports your thoughts about it being an ongoing families change and it being an ongoing process. But equally, we've got to make we've got to ensure that we have the ethos of trust as well. And that it's what the families want rather than us keeping an eye on them, if that makes sense. Right. Yes. Yes. And I think certainly from our point of view, from the extended family's point of view, um, the, there was complete trust there. We really wanted and needed um the support not only of the family group um, conference coordinator, but actually of the social workers and and the care system um, in order to support this family. So, there's something in that though as well with Lucy saying that in terms of the high turnover of staff, particularly in children's services, and the impact that then can have um, in terms of the families and children that are working to support. I'm keen to talk though about court timetables. And um, this is something uh, Kate I think mentioned a few minutes ago. Sarah, you talked about the preparation stage can take four to six weeks, I think, earlier, if, if I got that right. Now, given the work involved in setting up a family group conference and the time needed to ensure that all the relevant people are involved, can difficulties then arise if a case is with the family courts uh, in terms of ca- compatibility with the court's timetable, which I'm, I think I'm learning more and more can be rather inflexible? Absolutely. I, I can't remember the last referral I got that wasn't labelled as urgent, but why is it urgent and what's it urgent for? When you dig a little bit deeper, um, people's different versions of what urgent is, it is quite interesting. I, I as a family group, trained family group conference coordinator, I cannot in, in all authenticity speed up the process and I won't speed up the process. But I do, I do work alongside social workers because I do understand that if this is an important part of decision-making in the court arena, we've got to do everything that we can to support speed where possible. So we do some things like when we get our referral, we get some potential dates from the social worker because that can hold up the process a lot because social workers are so busy um, finding a time in their diaries to hold 
a potentially three, four hour meeting um, um, can be very difficult. So we do some things like that. We, we set those dates early on when we get the referral. We get an advocate in place quite quickly because they've obviously got to meet the children. So we can do some things to speed up the process. But if we do, if we make it too quick, we are undermining that preparation stage and that really important relationship building, which Lucy's already mentioned the importance of. So we can be flexible, but we can't undermine the authenticity of the process. Now, Sarah, we've talked a lot about what family group conferencing is, but what I want to know is, you know, does a family actually have a right to a family group conference? We've talked about it being the family's meeting or the child's meeting, but do they have a right to have it? Is it something which is set out in statute? No, not in England. <laughs> okay. Um, so it depends on where you live and how the family group conference service is delivered and, and commissioned in that area. And this is an issue because you have a differentiation according to where you live and what postcode you're in. So for us, where, where we live and where I practice, that every child going to PLO will have a right to a family group conference if they consent to it and it's safe. But you wouldn't necessarily get that in three, four boroughs along from where I live, because it really depends on how that service is funded. So, no, there is no right to have a family group conference. The only right is to have a family a family meeting prior to PLO. And it depends on the area that that family lives in as to how that is funded and, and provided for by the local authority or by independent and charitable sector organisations. If we take it all the way back, though, to where it originated in New Zealand, it is a statutory requirement in New Zealand, isn't that right? Yes, it's a statutory requirement in New Zealand, and that is obviously where where the process came from, and it was in response to a high number of children in local authority of care because communities who looked after children weren't being acknowledged and recognised. And as soon as that happened and people recognised that actually the children are part of a community who were there to support and look after them, um, it, it became integrated into their legislative framework. We're not quite there yet in England. I would say Scotland are a little bit further ahead than us. Um, they, they've, got, um, they've got guidance and the promise which talks about family group decision-making, has a different language, mm-hmm. um, but about what social care looks like and how family group decision-making can be integrated into the children's safeguarding process more. And so I would say that we're not for as far along in that, in that co- consistent way of dealing and working with family group conferences as they are in Scotland. I know this might be a bit kind of finger in the air type of question, but is there, do you have any idea in terms of um, local authorities in England, the, the a rough breakdown in terms of the percentages that do offer family group conferencing? Okay, it looks like she might. Yeah, well, the last, um, the last figure that I'm aware of, um, in 2015, the Family Rights Group undertook a piece of research and at that time found that there were 70, 76% of local authorities who had some kind of FGC service. However, that's the latest data that I'm aware of. And, you know, we're seven years on now and with um, the reduction in public sector funding and austerity measures, I would surmise that 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 might be slightly less because with FGCs not being a statutory part of the process, those additional services are often the first to go when councils are struggling to pay even for their statutory services. Thank you, Kate. Now, what I'm keen to know is whether or not there is an evidence base that indicates the family group conferencing leads to better outcomes for children and young people or if they reduce demand for services in the long term. Do we have that evidence? 
Yeah, so um, what's interesting is family group conferences are the most research area of social work across the globe. And there are several um, pieces of research which evidence the positive outcomes that family group conferences can um, lead to. Now, this research and evidence base has often been um, criticised because it's largely been based upon small-scale, localised studies and evaluations of services, and there are very few comparative um, studies available. However, there is so much research globally on the efficacy of FGCs, and for a book that I wrote on FGCs with my colleague, Dina Edwards, we undertook a review of some of the international research evidence on family group conferences. And from that review, we found that family group conferences have got the potential to reduce the number of looked after children and consequently increase the number of children being cared for by their families, improve relationships between family members and professionals and also amongst professionals themselves, and engage more fathers in child protection processes. And we do know that we still struggle to engage with fathers in um, in statutory processes. So there is, um, there is a lot of research out there. However, it tends to focus on outcomes in the shorter term. And there is... Uh, there aren't many longitudinal studies in terms of what the longer term outcomes are of FGCs. Lucy, you don't have anything to compare it to, but what I'm keen to know is, you know, well, how satisfied were you with the process that you went through and did you feel empowered by the process? I'd say we as a family were, um, when we um, were brought in to the um, family group uh, conference, we were able to review in a coordinated and structured way how we could make sure that the needs of the child were met. I think that often in this, these situations, the parent has ultimate control. I think quite often we have this in our society now, this sort of nuclear um, family where you might have one or two parents who are not coping, but have the, the decision-making um, authority. Um, and once the um, extended family were brought in, um, in a more um, official way, we were able to um, say that this is what the social workers are going to want in order for this child not to be taken into care. And suddenly the parent needs to include the extended family in a structured way um, where they hadn't really needed to before. So it gave the extended family some authority and the extended family are the ones that were coping at this time. The extended family were the ones that were ultimately able to offer some stability to this child. And so, um, yeah, for sure, it, it empowered um, our family to um, to care for this child for a, a short period of time um, when, when it was needed. Um, I think not only did it empower us, but actually it made us more accountable because we then had to come up with a plan and think about it and, and um, follow through with these plans. And I think that was an important part of the process. Thank you, Lucy. I know family group conferencing is known by different terms around the world. So in the USA, they're family-guided decision-making. I'm not even going to try to say it in Dutch, but in the Netherlands, they're known as translated to own power conferences. So yeah, in terms of empowering the people that are involved, um, that seems to be a, a really good way of describing them. 
Just wanted to pick up on the point Kate mentioned there, Andy, about longitudinal studies. Um, yes. I've been speaking to Jonathan Scalfield at Cardiff University, who's um, leading on a project called the Family Voice. Uh, it's a new study led by the Cascade at, at Cardiff University, and it's looking at those longer term outcomes of family group conferences over four years to hope to fill these evidence gaps about outcomes of family group conferences and what difference quality and context make. Now, all FG service, FGC services in the UK will have received the first part of this, which is a questionnaire. So please, I'm asking people to look out for it, to fill it in. This is being done in collaboration with the Family Rights Group and will help us fill some of those unknown gaps about the longer term impacts of family group conferences. Um, he's also given an email address if people wanted to be involved in a workshop, which is family-voice at cardiff.ac.uk. Thanks, Sarah. Now, I just want to highlight the Baswa Family Group Conferencing Special Interest Group, which you are the vice chair of, of course. If anyone who's listening wants to get involved in that group and they're a Baswa member, how can they get in touch? Um, I would really like them to contact me. Um, and my email address is slb57 at kent.ac.uk. I mean, the purpose of the Special Interest Group has is is to share good practice between interested stakeholders and raise the profile of FGCs across various areas of practice, the ones, some, many of which we've talked about today. Um, since I've been the vice chair, we've hosted a roundtable event with stakeholders, um, the outcomes of which were listed to be uh, shared at the JSWEC conference in 21. We've delivered a national webinar. And of course, we have this podcast now. So we're gearing ourselves that's up. The, for, that's yeah. the cherry on the cake. Okay. Sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're thinking about a work plan for 2022. Um, and we've got lots of really exciting ideas about bringing practice together across the four nations. I've mentioned the disparity between us and, and Scotland. And obviously there's a research project happening in Wales. And just thinking about bringing together good practice to evaluate differences um, and informing good practice. And we're not averse to more persuasive measures, if necessary, um, to, to promote and champion family group conferences in, in a more national context. Kate, before we finish, I just actually have one last question that I wanted to ask because I talked about more positive outcomes. Now, often local authorities can think of the positive outcomes solely from their point of view, but from a moral point of view, from an ethical point of view, from the point of view of empowering the family to make the decisions that benefit them and improve their life opportunities, do FGCs uh, deliver that goal? Yeah, so I think whilst it's really important, obviously, to consider outcomes for children and families, I think for me, um, it's morally and ethically the right thing to do to um, offer families a family group conference and to give them the opportunity to be involved in decision making, well, to lead decision making, really, that um, is about them and their families. And whether or not it leads to a positive outcome from the local authorities' point of view, at least then we've given the family the opportunity um, we've kind of redistributed the decision-making power. And Eve, research has suggested that even when families don't get the outcome that they want from a family group conference, um, they say that they welcome the opportunity to, um, to have their say. They've often been felt listened to for the first time by statutory services. So really, for me, it's about it being just simply the right thing to do and is, um, you know, and fits in with and is congruent with social work values. Thank you, Kate. Kate, Sarah, Lucy, thanks so much for joining me on Let's Talk Social Work. It's been great to spend an hour with you. Um, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. 
Thank you. Bye. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.